Sunday live stream, which means that I'm having connection issues and not knowing how to do things and probably should have like introduced my guest before having him on screen. But that's all right. Uh, we'll figure it out. Um, my name is James. Today I'm joined, of course, by LB Muniz, who was very happy to be my guinea pig for this very first Sunday live stream. The way that this format's going to work, so I'm going to live stream it on Sunday. Everybody's invited, but then it's going to go dark for anybody that's not a paid member of Blackbird. And then the audio will go public next week. Uh, LB and I did plenty of pre-show banter that the paid subscribers are not going to have access to because we couldn't. We I forgot to record it, which is fine. Um, thank you for your support. Uh, some of that stuff was not fit for public consumption anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Anyway, LB, welcome back. I think this is what like your third or fourth time on the show. I think this is number three. Nice. Yeah, James, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, thanks excited for- about the new format too. Yeah, me too. Uh, I kind of wanted to do sort of a replacement for what, what's his face, um, Mike Wallace, Chris Wallace, the, whichever Wallace quit Fox News. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of liked his Sunday morning show, and I feel like you know there's a gap there, so I'm going to fill it. Sunday shows were always one of my favorite when I was like more in the cable news consumption yeah. thing. Sunday shows were always one of my favorites because it's like the whole week. Yeah, exactly, and they had interesting guests. Meet the Press was kind of my go-to, I guess, before um, What's-His-Name took it over. I don't, I don't remember who's... Is it Chuck Todd that's... Yeah, I think so. Meet I think he's now. still doing it. Yeah. So his, whoever his predecessor was, I liked him just for the interview quality. Um, so I don't know, man. I didn't prepare like a whole lot of questions for you because we're friends. So uh, I figured we'd just kind of shoot the shit. Um, I guess top of mind as far as you go is this post-libertarian moment. I like that you made it a moment and not an ism. You're more educated, I guess, in philosophy and and schools of thought and things like that. But to me, it seems like a lot of the isms are really more just noticing historical trends and kind of applying ideology to them. Does that sound right? Something like that? There is like this weird, and I say weird because that's the word that came to mind, but there's, I, I, it's, it's part of internet culture for sure. I've had, I've been thinking a lot. I mean, generally speaking, I try to have my thoughts circle around, you know, skepticism, which is putting doubt before assent or or inquiry Mm -hmm. before dogma. And then, but also the exploration of like what identity is because uh, for, for reasons we can get into one thing about like internet culture and maybe just, maybe just political culture as well. Like people who are interested in politics or political philosophy. And I was somebody who for the longest time said, I'm not political. I'm interested in political philosophy. And over the course of writing, it's just like, well, I, 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 I'm just going to stop like with that consternation and that, um, uh, like the lady doth protest too much. Right. If I, if I, if I say I don't like politics, but I'm talking about politics and like political figures, then what am I really doing? And I think that feeds into the idea of the post-libertarian moment as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's, there's a, there is a tendency and a rush for people to put an ism to something that isn't there. Like I said on, I said when I went on Kingpill to talk about it, I was like, okay, so like, I'm like, I'm very excited whenever somebody like 
discover something new, a friend of mine who like is going back to church or meets somebody or has a kid, like all these great moments in life that, you know, or like, like a change in your life or something like that. But like, there's nothing new about going to church and there's nothing new about like believing in God. It maybe feels new to like the world that we live in, but it, but it's not in the grand scope of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so I think I try to take that longer view of humankind. And so like, oh, what's this post-libertarianism? What's this post-libertarianism? Well, it's not one thing. It's actually many things, but it circles around, I think, you know, I think I said, what I said, what I, what I wrote was the post-libertarian moment is when a libertarian realizes that popular democratic strategies and um, political dogma and like political dogma isn't sufficient. Like it's not up to the task of the, of the world that we live in. What world do we live in? We live in a world that is, you know, post-2020, right? That is post the ma- post-massive lockdowns. And the world has changed. We're already starting to, if you're paying close enough attention, you can already start to see the way things are shifting. And frankly, even in my like, even in my personal life, when I have conversations with people who aren't, you know, like super into libertarian politics or just political theory in general, even they're starting to notice it, right? Like people, you know, guys who I, guys, customers of mine who I'll just talk to be like, man, it just, just feels like nothing, like just doesn't feel like anything can be fixed, right? We got to just, you know, and so it's like, we just got to get everybody out of office and replace everybody or they have some other kind of solution for it. So I think we're in, I think the difference between philosophy and ideology is that philosophy starts from the beginning and finds its way to the end. Whereas ideology, you start at the end and you work your way back to the beginning. And that's where this tendency to just turn something into an ism, right? Like, um, like Tim Poole, right? Like identitarianism. I always hated that word. I just think, you know, like we just add an ism and, we're, and, and people are expected to understand what that means in every single context. So, I, there's, so, so when, I wrote the, when I wrote the essay, I tried to delineate the journey right? So I gave like a bit of a historical understand, a historical case for it. I talked about what it is, what it isn't, why it's, and why, why, and why I think, for example, like the LPMC strategy won't work. Um, and, and or isn't going to work out the way that people, <laughs> isn't going to work out the way people uh, think it will. And, and so I guess we can get into that. But I think the the broader thing, because again, to the point of, of ideology is you can get so hung up on just what your people think and realizing that there are other people who think differently is something that is, I think, very difficult for people to accept. And, and, and that kind of makes sense because if everybody thinks differently than you, then that's kind of a problem if you're the outsider. Yeah, and not only like people thinking different from outside your ideology, but even, even probably more poignant, especially for libertarians, but also for, I mean, leftists too, people who call themselves libertarians or who call themselves Marxists or who call themselves conservatives. There's so much variance between just those groups that uh, it's really tough to kind of pin down like what an ism is. I mean, you know, look at the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. I mean, right now we think of Marxism as this monolith and, and they have just as much inviting in 2022 as they did in 1922. Correct. So I really do think that looking at the historical view rather than the ideological view of these things is a lot more interesting. And I don't know if it's more practical though. Like, I mean, what is the libertarian praxis? I mean, Jose, who calls himself a, an agorist, just joined our chat. And that's one branch of libertarianism that absolutely hates 
the Libertarian Party. I mean, you think Andrew talks shit about the LP. Like, Konkin treated the LP like it was some heretical cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um no. So I think the one of the, I think the, here here might be an interesting jumping off point. I think the last time we spoke, the last time we spoke on your show, we discussed my like idea that I think in in some respects what we look at as libertarianism is the kind of this mist, um, accident of the internet, mm-hmm. right? So like in let's say you read Mises in college, right? Because that would generally be the people who would get to that sophisticated uh. Um, like an economics textbook, right? Maybe in high school, you read economics in one lesson. Obviously, people read human action in high school. But like, let's say you read Mises in college and like, so you learn from the Austrian school. But like, to your point, and this is this feeds into my idea of the paradox of identity, but like, okay, so Austrian, is Austrian economics synonymous with libertarianism? If so, why aren't some libertarian, why, why isn't every Austrian a libertarian? Why isn't every libertarian an Austrian? Right. So you might learn Mises and say, okay, so I'm a libertarian because the Mises Institute is broadly libertarian. And then suddenly you go out into the world and, you know, you might go into a place like the LP where suddenly you meet people who are libertarian, who, who say they're libertarian, but who don't have any of the same beliefs that, as you do around like what's the most important part of the idea. The, where this becomes a point of contention and creates division is the political realm. Because in politics, we're trying to figure out who owns what. That's my distillation of political philosophy Mm. in three words. Who owns what? If you can answer those questions, you can build a society around it, right? Whether whether that's a king, whether that's individual sovereignty, we can can unpack these ideas. But that is the broad school of of political, or that is the broad field of political philosophy. And there are various schools that attempt to answer that question. Whereas... There, so like, and this, and another, and another formulation just for just for the listeners as well is like, there's at least two answers to everything, right? And so most people, and you know, frankly, the agorists, a lot of the agorists are part of this, but it's like, well, this is the only way. This is the only way forward, and a lot of people do that. Why? Because you know, it it, it create, you know, it sets you up as an authority. It creates like a very easy foil for you to use if somebody deviates from your path, and clearly they're not doing something correctly, but. I have always, I, I just don't take that same view. And that comes from the skeptical schools of thought that I, that I, that I trace back to like the pre-Socratics or, or at the very least post-Socrates or Socrates being the best archetype for this idea of skepticism. Keeping in mind that most of what we know about Socrates is only through somebody like Plato because Socrates didn't write anything down. So sometimes when you're, if you're reading, let's say you're reading like the dialogues, what your teacher will tell you is like, okay, so like, the apology is generally considered to be pretty close to Socrates' thought and, and very, very true. But when you start to read other Pla- Platonic works, Plato uses Socrates as a character that to fulfill out, to flesh out his own ideas. And so we have, we even have a tension inside of that. But so, but, but just this idea that there is only one answer to things, I think is, um, I think is part of human thought, right? Because I think that exists at the instinctual level, because if we have one task, we can probably accomplish that. But we live in such a complex world. Uh, you know, Brett, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine used the word hypernovelty in their book that I just finished. And it was, I highly recommend it, um, talking about evolutionary biology. But just the hypernovelty of our age, I think, requires us to, to again, to use a term that Brett, that Brett uses, is go into explorer mode. And that represents what the post-libertarian moment is. 
right? And so fine, call me a post-libertarian at this point. I'm, I'm less concerned by that label because at the end of the day, I'm here to explore ideas and to try and make them popular and to try and give people useful nuggets with which they can improve their understanding of the world. And I don't, and there's a certain extent to which I'm, I'm less concerned what the crowd calls me as opposed to what I can actually produce because, because the crowd is always going to be there and they're going to take their own, uh, they're going to take their own spin on pretty much everything. You recently tweeted, or maybe it was James Lindsay and you, you retweeted something like that. Mm -hmm. He basically said that like kids should not be taught Marxism. Yes. And you know, I mean, fair enough. Do you think though, that is there value in Marx's historiography and sort of his sort of timeline of history? I took a class way back when, and that was finally where I got to read the, where finally was assigned the Communist Manifesto. And we were talking about it. And what I, and kind of what I said to the professor was, and he was like a Straussian. So he wasn't a strict Marxist, but he was, you know, he was, and he was a Straussian. So like. Real quick, Straussians are sort yeah. of the predecessor to neocons, right? I think so. Yeah. They had, they take like a different historical view. They're not strictly Marxist by any, by okay. any means. Um, I wouldn't consider them akin to Marxism, but I don't know a lot about it. The point okay. was he wasn't a, the point, the point was he um, wasn't a Marxist per se, but he was still was like, okay, what can we learn from Marx? And what I kind of said was, well, I think if you look for good ideas, you can find, if you look hard enough, you can find these good ideas in other schools. You can find these ideas in other thoughts. And so I don't really know why we're still reading Marx, other than the fact that he has been profoundly influential, sure. But it's a question of, it is the degree, it is the ease at which you can read the Communist Manifesto or find, let's say, maybe say, find the Communist Manifesto on a college bookstore versus finding, not to go to the God, uh, the Godwinian well so quickly, but, you know, finding what, what a certain Fuhrer wrote, uh, his, his main thing. I don't know. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to, but not trying not to trigger YouTube. Right. But like yeah. everybody has a book. Anybody who's had ideas has created a book at one point in history, or now we have Substack for that to try and develop ideas as well. So I think, is there a place for academic, for academic discussion around Marxism? Sure. I guess. I think that that confuses the point of what are we teaching children, right? And what, and, and, and certainly I would never, I, I don't think there's any use in teaching children the, the beauties of Marx, right? You might teach the dangers of Marxism, but I don't see any, I don't see any reason why, why Americans, why people who believe in liberty, why patriots, you know, people who care about the idea of freedom, would think to talk about Marx. Marx has his own idea of freedom, that, that this is true. I just, I think it muddies the water too much. And moreover, and this is also what I argued within the course of that class, is like, okay, yeah, so we get Marx. Where's the, where's the antidote to Marx? Oh, so you read Ayn Rand? Like Ayn Rand doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same, uh, she's certainly anti-Marxist, but like her, her if, you, if you put her fiction up against Marx's theory, it's very easy to draw, uh, to, to dismiss him to dismiss like the Randian school of thought or like individualism as Rand puts out. And of course, there's never, Mises is never, Mises is never put out there as an alternative. Hayek is not even put out there as an alternative. I've, I mean, I can remember back in college, people not even hearing of Hayek. And it's like, oh, this is supposed to be the popular one that we can all get behind. You know, so less so Rothbard, obviously, Hoppe, as the case may be. You're, not, you're never going to find these things in a college classroom. 
So why does this matter for kids? And, and why, where does it connect to college? Well, it does because most, because of this, because of this phenomenon that happens all the time, you have a, you have a conversation in, in an academic discussion, and then somebody in the back of the room who's not really paying attention raises their hand and says, is this going to be on the test? So if I know that Mark, that I have to answer these questions about Marxism, and I don't really have to think about, think about Marxism, but clearly this is something worth learning because my teacher said it's something worth learning. And this is, this is, it is this iteration that creates the natural process whereby humans take an idea and they run with it. So if I'm never given Marxism as a kid, I'm never going to look at the world in a Marxist, with a Marxist lens, right? Like I had, a, I had an upbringing that was very anti-communist, very anti-Marx. So when I was exposed to the ideas, I had, you know, I had my inoculation. I knew that this wasn't the rosy image that people are actually presenting. This isn't the case that this thing works on paper and doesn't in practice. No, this is a dangerous ideology that has destroyed millions of lives and given license to somebody like Lenin to kill millions of people. Because, yeah, okay, you could argue that Marx didn't want Lenin to do what he did in communism, and you can argue that it's not real Marxism and all that kind of stuff. These are academic debates. Academic debates are kind of characterized by the fact of their, um, well, we might say their uselessness in a way, because it's this idea of like, eh, we can kind of split, we can split the hairs here, but we don't, but, but like there's not going to be a huge consequence that comes from this, at least not in the academic setting, right? It's when you take that academic setting and you turn it into this, these are the ideas that you need to focus on and believe in in order to be, uh, in order to be a happy and healthy person. And of course, we don't deal with Marxism today. This is the important, this is an important point. We deal with, my, my, my formulation is the specter of Marx, right? So we deal with the critical theorists. We deal with the queer theorists. We deal with the race theorists, the critical race theorists today. They all borrow from the same wellspring, but they are not, but they are not equal to Marxism per se. And so when you get into the academic discussion, if you're not prepared for these things, Suddenly, you can be put on the you can be put on the defense, and so what somebody like James Lindsay, who is you know interesting to follow, just the radicalization of people like this, which has been a very slow burn, kind of almost them turning into I'd say proto reactionaries because I wouldn't say they're quite there yet, but like you you can see it in the way that somebody like Lindsay is like, dude, the more I look into the stuff, it's like. How are we even coming close to teaching this to kids who, by the way, don't have the theory of mind, don't have the presence of mind or the intelligence to discern these things in any kind of um, nuanced way, right? I mean, like, go, you know, this is, uh, what's the bit, another big one, let's make it a little more popular with like American politics. I can remember my history teacher in middle school when they were talking about um, what it like Nixon's Southern strategy, I think is what it would be. Mm. And I, I have this like distinct memory of like, now the Republicans initially were initially existed to like free the slaves. But then yeah. in the 1960s, they switched sides. And that's how she taught why Democrats today are for race or are like for quote unquote for minorities or, or whatever. So like this is, you can't think about these things in terms of what is the best person going to do with these ideas. You have to, and this is, the, this is the skepticism, you have to think of what is the worst person going to do with these ideas. And that's why I don't, I think, I think the conversation and the, the fact that more people are, um, that more people are aware of this, of this is, is a good thing, right? And like really seeing, really seeing that this is like, well, why are we doing this? Aren't we American? 
aren't, you know, is, didn't we fight the communists? Why are we teaching what the communists believed in our schools? That, that's the way I look at it. I don't know if, I don't know if you had like a follow-up question for that to maybe drill down more on it. Well, the problem is kids sort of have this innate sense of fairness. Like that's not fair is, I mean, basically the first thing any kid whines really, especially yes. if they've got siblings. Mm -hmm. So I think that ignoring like class consciousness, I guess, might be a misstep. And I mean, even people like Hoppe, who I, I guess was heavily influenced by a Marxist, I, I forgot who his teacher was, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater on that kind of thing, I guess. Like mm -hmm. you can teach kids like a better form You can of, teach the difference of class without talking about Marx. Can you? I, I think so. I mean, you can talk about the differences between classes and, and perhaps, you know, perhaps that's something that needs to be developed, right? But can you, I mean, I feel like if you do that though, I mean, that would be like teaching libertarianism without teaching about Rothbard or Mises. I don't think that I don't think that Marx is unique to having class analysis. I think there. I I, I mean, Hegel talks about class, and of course, mm -hmm. Marx was profoundly influenced by Hegel, right? So, like, you could you could you could go against me there, but I think the uh, teaching the idea of class is is useful, but does a but when maybe that's that's really the other part sure. of this is, and really, we're not talking about class consciousness in in the modern day when we're talking about how this is being taught, at least in the states is we're not talking about that. We're talking about race consciousness, right? Yeah, and gender consciousness. And so to the extent, and, and it's using the same exact formulation or, or, you know, basically the same formulation that Marx used, uh, that Marx used to teach it. So I think that there is like a room for this. We could talk about different classes. The, I think what I always return to is why are we using Marx for this? Is he really the best person to understand the idea of classes? I don't think so because I don't know that we... I don't know that we necessarily need to look at classes as being in this eternal struggle, even in the context of populism, because I think there's two conversations. I think there's where we are and how we got here. I don't think we, I don't think it has always been the case that populism is always the answer to every problem, right? That's the kind of dogmatic thinking I think doesn't serve people well um, if we're going to talk about ideas. It is the case, though, that today populism is, it, it does exist has reason to exist. And the and the main one of the main drivers behind that being the fact that under populism we're talking a lot about the elites and just frankly these elites aren't good stewards. These elite the, the current crop of elites that exist today aren't good stewards of ideas. They're not having the why is it that the conversations that need to be having for a population at large are occurring on a comedian's talk show that he has in a hangar where he smokes cigars and gets high? Right? Like everything you're not supposed to do under like austere corporate, like this is, this is, mm. I am Walter Cronkite. This is the, that's the news. But like that, that's what, that's what I'm driving. That, that I think, so that's where like populism fits in. I don't know that you could say pop, populism works every, in every age at every time. I think there are, um, and so too then with, with this idea of like, oh, well, we just have to teach Marxism to kids. Again, like we can talk about, and, and frankly, Classism is becoming more of an issue in American society because, again, of because of like the, the mistakes of the simple and the quick, right? Like mistakes made 100 years ago or what we would view as mistakes of 100 years ago vis-a-vis -vis like, let's say, central banking that, you know, we've, we've like borrowed from the future to pay for today for 100 years. And we're just the unlucky sons of bitches that have to deal with that today. Right? Like, you know, like, we, why don't we look at it like that? And um, 
so so again, just to but just to hit the just to hit back on the idea, I think there's a way to talk about different classes. I don't know that America has had the class issue in the past that it might have in the future, given like uh, you know just the stratification we do see in social classes and that mobility isn't perhaps isn't what it used to be, um, or or certainly they're doing everything they can to make class mobility what it isn't used to, what it wasn't because basically they're just they're buying into this victim morality. Or, or they're selling the victim morality that people are buying, which means let's say you're somebody who has six figures in college debt because you made mistakes and you know everybody said go to college, get the you know just just sign away, just sign for the loans, it's all going to be fine. You know you're going to get a job on the other end that's going to pay for all of this, and that was true up until like 2008, 2010, for for most people, right? There's always there's always outliers, but so you might say like. So you're faced with this mountain, and I, you know, like I deal with this personally, frankly. In fact, I just finally refinanced my loans so that it's it's actually a manageable payment. Um, but you you can basically sit and whine, and you can beg Joe Biden, which we you know we've seen like the tweets and the TikToks that are like, "Please, Joe Biden, forgive the loans, forgive the loans," or you can work hard, and you can kind of and you can keep working until you get to a point where it's manageable. And like, it's not, it's, I don't consider it justified. I don't, I don't consider like everybody's student loans just per se, but what do you do in the face of injustice? Do you, do you bow to it? Do you succumb to it? Or do you overcome it? And I think that that's a deeper conversation than going back to where we started, like ideology, right? Like, and the, what the ideology is kind of supposed to do, especially given how a religious or atheistic we are today like the, the ideology gives you all, again, kind of does that thing that religion was supposed to do, which is give you all the answers for things. This is so I think I've also talked about how I view religion and theolo- religion or theology and philosophy as like the melody and the counter melody with theology, religion, theology being the melody, philosophy being the counter melody. For because, the musically retarded, what does counter melody mean? A, so a counter melody is a, a, a simultaneous melody on the same piece. So like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, and so it kind of, it, they, but they don't, they don't, they're not necessarily harmonized in every instance. Cause if it was harmony, then it would be backing up the, the main melody. So it's just this idea that you can have in like classic, in like what we call classical music, you'll, you'll kind of see this where you might have two melodies going simultaneously. But basically to the point is they're not necessarily, they, they don't necessarily interface with each other, but they're part of the same song is, is kind or in that they interface with each other, it's because it's because they're part of the same song, not because they like go together at every single uh, at, at every single opportunity or at every single stage. So I think what we what we have today then is people trying to take ideology and make it religion because we are beings that worship and we are beings that have faith. Because and why do we have faith? Because you know we we have faith because we can't know everything. We can barely know whether you know we're going to wake up tomorrow. That's just, you know, that's, that's the skeptic, that's the skeptic in me. And so when you're trying to make something that is, when you're trying to take something as new as an ideology and turn it into a religion, it turns out it's pretty hollow and it's taken, it's basically, basically today, then we have this like reverse engineered religion of the state that's been put on top of us. Um, And you can call it progressivism if you want. And I, in fact, and in fact, I would. Right. And, and, and in fact, I think it's an, I think it's a mistake to just call all of these things liberalism. Right. Um, even if, even if they arose from liberalism, which is 100% accurate, it's the progressivism. It's this, and, and I think progressivism won the day. 
one thing I've been thinking about meditating on recently is this, given the, given the ease at which people have bought into all these new things that we see in our lives, whether it's wearing a mask, whether it's this, you know, social distancing, um, just like the manner in which you're supposed to apologize for going to hang out with your family, or we all have to get tested to go hang out with our family because just in case we don't know, blah, 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 blah. Like all of these things, all of these new rituals and talismans that have been introduced into the consciousness of let's stick with America, but really the world has been aided and abetted by the technological means at our disposal. And isn't it interesting, or at least it is to me, to think about what Marx could have done, scary thought, what Marx could have done if he had the same, if he had the same technological capacity at his hand. Or what somebody like, if you, don't, if you want to move on from Marx and you want to say he was just an austere philosopher, fine, whatever. Like, you know, like, let's, then let's, let's, let's move our conversation to somebody like Woodrow Wilson. What could Woodrow, mm-hmm. Look what Woodrow Wilson was able to do, getting America into the, first, into the Great War. Um, vis-a-vis propaganda. And we just see, we see this method of social control exerted at, at, at such a high, the buy-in is, I think the buy-in took all of us by surprise. And again, this goes back to the post-libertarian moment because the, the dominant idea is, well, if we just expose enough people to the ideas, then we're going to create a revolution just like Ron Paul wanted. And it's going to be a revolution of love and everybody's just going to embrace the message of freedom. Turns out, a lot of people, when they're put into a constant state of fear, are very happy with embracing the message of tyranny or authoritarianism. And I don't like the word authoritarianism versus liberal versus libertarianism because I think we need to recalibrate our mm. um, our uh, what's the word our tolerances for the world, right? So this is another idea that I, that I've been batting around and I I want to write about. But like everything that you buy has a tolerance, right? That's yeah. why you might wear like a nine or a 10 or an 11 or a 12, depending on where you go to shop for shoes. Everywhere has a tolerance within it. And the way we perceive the world operates the same thing. So if we set our, if we set our tolerances to, uh, to interpret the world between an authoritarian and a libertarian frame, right? Well, then, oh, this is all authoritarianism. Yes, but no, because really this is tyranny. Like we can envision a world in which like authority is actually a good thing. Let's say, and you know, the easy one would be like, let's say you're a drug addict and you really want to get clean and you, and this is the Alcoholics Anonymous, the Narcotics Anonymous steps of saying like, I am not in control of my, of, of my behavior. I need something bigger than me in order to, in, in order to, to be better. And so like, maybe, maybe it works like that. If you join the military, you don't, you know, that's, that's authority. But there's a lot of people who join the military that will say, at least I got that discipline, right? For take out, I understand the libertarian, and I'm going to use the word dogma here in a pejorative sense, but I understand the libertarian dogma of like, you know, the military being bad because they wage wars, but that's not why people get into the military, right? They get into the military because they see it as their way out of their town or because they want to serve their country. And for some people, it's because, you know, maybe that they're, maybe they are the type that just want to have an excuse to, go out and commit violence. And that's fine. Um, you know, all these things are part of it, but what do you get? Well, you, in this very authoritarian structure, you learn discipline, you learn all of these things. And of course, any school environment has that aspect as well. This is where, this is why, this is why, again, a lot of what I'm trying to get out and why it's not always clear is because this is about recalibration for me. This isn't about re, this isn't about 
leaving ideas that I've studied for a long time or, or about like, it, it's, it's more about stress testing than it is about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think in addition to tolerances, I mean, it, a lot of it is just expectations. Like I bring up Hoppe again. I mean, you just have to read Democracy, The God That Failed, and you kind of realize how authoritarian, for lack of a, not lack of a better word, I mean, I guess there are better words, but like a libertarian society would not be just everybody kind of free for all doing whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. So I guess when I bring up class and class consciousness, I think it's important that people, and like from an early age, recognize that like, it's a small club and you ain't in it, basically. Mm-hmm. And especially right now, as we're entering into this new kind of age of the plutocrat, a new technocratic progressive era that makes the 19-teens look tame by comparison, just like you said, given the technology. So maybe it's well, not necessary you know, it just to just from... into my head? So why yeah. don't we teach them the cathedral and we don't teach them, we don't teach them about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie? Sure. I, th- I think if we want to, talk, I mean, I think that's a that's an, an, a class analysis in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, not to say that Yarvin gets everything right, but he got that right very, very well. Um, the idea of what we do as media personalities versus what a university professor does versus what a politician does is at the at, at its core is in a way social control, right? Like. I might be giving you the best ideas for things. And I think I do a pretty good job of that, but that doesn't, and I'm not necessarily looking to hold, you know, like I'm not looking to hold a leash on people, but what I, what we all attempt to do with, with a meet, with a media, with a micro, you know, with a microphone trying to is, is we're trying to tell the mass, the herd, like, Hey, I've got ideas that you need to listen to. Right. You, you might, and, and then, but then when you become the authority and then suddenly you need to maintain your control over people and there's two ways you can maintain your control over people. You can do that by being authentic or you can do that by becoming tyrannical. Tyranny, again, I'm going to come back to this word a lot because tyranny is that order which is, uh, which is against like the natural or like God's order, we might say, right? Like this is like, it is a, and so it is like, it's, it's, so it is a chaos. It is an order unto, unto itself. This is why I don't love the, this is why order and chaos can only be understood in terms of their opposite. So like what is tyranny for what is chaos in one instance for some from a perspective might be order in another perspective. But, but to the point is like this, like the tyranny is you can still wake up, go outside. Things aren't getting too bad. You know, you might, I think if you live in a major metropolitan area, you're probably noticing some different changes in the way people interact with each other. There's less friendliness. And that's a relative thing because big cities weren't known for their friendliness to begin with. Um, you know, people are ruder. Like I drive a lot and I just notice the way that people don't care anymore about like being polite, at least where I live. And then I go to a state like Michigan and everybody is like far more just, you know, nice in terms of like the, or like not as aggressive when it comes to driving. Uh, but if you go to a city like Miami, a city like Chicago, a city like LA, it's known just how aggressive and awful the drivers are. And I think and driving they're, isn't in, they're more aggressive than they were before. I would say here, certainly. Yeah. Wow. And they're like okay. in the couple of years that I've lived here, it's gotten worse. Uh, maybe and and maybe maybe it's gotten worse because I've become less impatient for the way people drive. Um, but but it's but I mean, you know, a city like Miami, it's known that the drivers are awful and they'll just cut you off. Everybody drives through red lights, yeah, so on and so forth. 
Um, and I like driving A because I do it a lot, but B because it's kind of like this thing. It's it's uh, I think it was it was actually Jordan Peterson talking to Brett Weinstein and Heather Hein, um, where he was saying like you know you'll you'll scream some you'll scream at somebody in your car a way that you wouldn't if you were standing next to them on the street. Right, yeah. like this idea of road rage, and, and isn't it interesting how we do the same thing on Twitter? On Twitter, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. That anonymity makes us assholes. Yep, because we don't see they're human. And what have we been? What have we done to the mass of humanity over the? Are we? What has? What have the powers that be done to the mass of humanity? They've. We've completely separated ourselves from knowing humans in a very instinct. I, I'm going to use the word instinctual. We might, we might not stick with that, but like instinctual sense, which is to say, you're walking down the street. I see your face. Therefore, you are a human. We don't see people's faces anymore. Mm-hmm. Again, especially in a metropolitan area. Do you think that's an intentional? Yes. I think the most recent change to where now we have to wear M95s shows that this is an intentional method of social control on the population. Like this isn't this is, it, it, may have, it may have begun with the best of intentions. I don't, again, like, I'm such an anti-formalist in this structure that you can, like, build it up with, like, but you don't understand. They were trying to keep people safe. It's like, yeah, but look at the effect. Look at the effect of what's actually happening, right? So first it was, hey, just please wear something because it's anything. And then so a lot of people found these, like, nice little masks that had vents on it. So it was easy to breathe. Your glasses wouldn't fog up. Blah, 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 blah. It was also more comfortable. Well, then what came out? Well, then we can't have people doing that, right? Like because though that just means that you're breathing out all the things in you, mm-hmm. and so you're not protected. So like so then it became like, oh, I can't believe you're wearing that kind of a mask, right? And, and this is this is the degree to which the and once it becomes fashion as well, we see again that this is a method of social control, and we can walk very easily through wear anything. Okay, now you can't like. You can't wear anything. Don't wear a bandana. How dare you wear a bandana, right? You have, to wear a, you have to wear a face mask. Okay, teacher, teacher, what happens if I wear a face mask that is just a bandana folded over? Yeah, that's fine. Like you can just wear a bandana folded over as a face mask and just like have the little things on the side. That's okay. And then a few months later, it's like, well, you have to cover your nose 100%. Like if you're not covering your nose, if you're not da 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 like on airplanes, right? You must, be, you must cover your nose and mouth between, between sips. This is behavioralism. We're behavioral creatures. This is creating habits in people. I mean, I, again, just in my, in my travels, in my walking around, it's like you'll see a parent not wearing a mask and you'll see the kid wearing a mask. And, and, you know, because the I kids are so, because the children are so trained. And I think we've all seen, or if not, you know, you can go out there and you can find pictures of how kids are like drawing like black over people's mouths and magazines. And like when they're doing their self-portrait, it's like, I need to put a mask on kids because I, because I, this doesn't fit. I don't see, I don't perceive humans as being faces. I perceive humans as wearing a mask. And so now what are we doing again? Sorry, let me just, let me just finish yeah. the point. Then it became double masking. So you can still wear your cute little fashionable cloth mask, but you have to wear the surgical mask underneath it. And of course, people have been wearing the M95s throughout this whole thing. And then it became, and now it is, well, guess what? Everybody's going to get a free, uh, is going to get a free face mask. And there, it's going to be the M95. And so that's very soon, it's going to be another sorting mechanism by which people can perceive difference. I mean, I, we, we were talking a little bit about the woes of being a single straight guy beforehand, which I appreciate you, I appreciate your, um, your shoulder in that, in that regard. But it's like, like I will, I swear dating profiles in Chicago where the, where there are three pictures of the four that you put where you're wearing a face mask. That is like, that is how people are perceiving themselves. And of course, 
where do you see, where do you see people not wearing masks? This was something very clear to me from the beginning. You don't see, you don't see anybody of importance ever wearing a mask, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a sing, if I'm the performer, I'm not wearing a mask, but all my backup dancers are. If I'm a, if I'm a, I'm a podcaster on a screen right now, I'm not wearing a mask, right? If I'm the president, I'm not wearing a mask when I'm giving a speech. So think about, again, going back to the children and, and the idea of a developing brain. What they are, this is what they are being trained. These are the only things that are human, the things I see on my screen, because that's where I actually see faces. I don't see faces. Well, like I have a thing where if I'm in an airport and I see a kid, I pull my mask down and I smile because I just, I, I can't, because... I can't because you you like naturally smile when you see a, when you see a baby. It's like this thing that just overtakes you. You can't even yeah. control yourself. You're just always going to give a little bit of a smile. It's like, oh, look at the cute kid. Like we are removing ourselves from this, from our basic biological evolution. And of course, let's go back to Marx. Marx didn't believe in any of that crap, right? He didn't believe in biology. He didn't believe in this idea that we are constrained beings with a nature because he believed that if we just created the correct incentive structure, people are going to become what they could always be, right? And so again, somebody like Lenin takes that and uses it in his own way. But to the point is the idea of a lot of these people and the progressives are just as much a part of this because basically going back to that point of like social media, it would have probably all been progressivism, right? There never would have been communism or fascism because like progressivism was kind of the American response to this European continental argument between fascism and communism. This is, by the way, why the historical understanding of ideas helps out a lot. Because if you look at them as outside of time, it's, well, they can be, it can be whatever you want it to be because an idea is just an abstraction. If we look at them in the context of history, we can start to play with these things. And that's, that's some of the work that I'm going to be doing um, in 2022 is I'm, I'm kind of returning to geometry because I've had this concept of the pantheonic approach, which is a method to understand ideas and schools of thought. Um, and I realized one day as I was kind of looking at my whiteboard that it's geometric in, in nature. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and in a hyper, in a hyper physics world, in the pan mechanistic world, as Mises would call it, that is, um, it, it's a lost, uh, well, it's a lost form of knowledge, right? Because geometry works. Geometry is deduction. Um, it's not, you know, you don't, a circle, the characteristics of a triangle are the characteristics of a triangle. It's three lines intersecting that to which it's, uh, the angles add up to 180 degrees. That's a triangle in every instance. So, yeah. Great. Are you going to be like reading Euclid and stuff or are you, is it more metaphorical geometry? No, legitimately, I, I do need to read some like basic geometry. So thank you for reminding me about Euclid. But I was like trying, I'm like, where do I need, like, I know there's a name and I couldn't think, I was, this was my, this was last oh, yeah. night. I was Euclid looking elements. for a book. Yeah, yeah, I was looking for Absolutely. a book to buy on this. So like, that'll be, that'll probably be the way because I want to go back to where the, to what the ancients used um, or at least start there and then like use maybe some modern compendiums as well to, um, to create the thing. And like, this isn't, this isn't to say that all, no- again, there's two answers to everything, right? There's at least two answers to everything. So this isn't to say that all knowledge is geometric, but this is to say, how can we use geometry to help us understand ideas better? That is, and in that my mission is better sense making, that's what I'm, that's kind of where I'm, that's kind of where I'm orienting. Uh, and that's again, the layer below the, like the news analysis and things that I do. What do you make of these cyclical views of history? Obviously that's kind of how we understand the East to understand history mm-hmm. but, you know i mean like vin armani came out with the thing with the with the the four i forgot what they were but they're basically 
history repeating itself or at least rhyming mm-hmm. from the point of view of sort of who's in power, which is, I mean, getting back to class a little bit. I mean, it's like the weak men create bad times, bad times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, does that kind of thing ring true to you? Is it important to understand that or is it just heuristics that are so obvious that you don't need to have a firm grasp on it? I would say it's useful, especially if you've never conceptualized time like that, right? The, the idea of conceptual, if you've never conceptualized time as cyclical, right? Or the idea that, or, or you know, the eternal return onto the same. I think that is useful. Uh, I'm not super familiar with Vin or Cyprian's formulation per se. Like I'm familiar with concepts of the fourth turning. My yeah, it's res- essentially that. My response is kind of where I was going to before, right? There is, that, like, so I just maybe have a different vector of approach, right? And that is, I think that's what makes my content worth reading. You guys can determine your, you guys can determine that for yourself by going to binawake.com and subscribing with your email address. But you can't, but like, it's, I, I just have a diff, different vector of approach, which is like, we can conceptualize time linearly. We can also conceptualize time as cycles. I like the idea of waves on the shore a little bit better as the metaphor, um, because it, I don't know, because I just always have enjoyed metaphors about like the ocean and and waves and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's I think it's just a question of if it is a cycle, at what point are you in the cycle, and what is the best uh, if you are if this is a cycle, and what what you have to deter, you have to identify what point in the cycle you are in, and then you will know what actions you need to take. Right? If it's if time is linear, then it's the same kind of thing. One thing that I think the cyclical view does very well is combat, going back to Karl Marx, is combating and, and Hegel to an extent, this natural teleology. Mm-hmm. And Marx, Marx is a very materialist person, but again, he's inspired by Hegel. Hegel wasn't a materialist. His whole concept is about Geist. His whole concept is about the spirit and how the spirit is trying to manifest itself through humans. So like, it's not even to say that, that the entirety of the inspiration is, is like without an element of spiritualism to it. Right, Marx just kind of thinks we can change the spirit of people, if you will, um, or rather, it's not really concerned with the individual spirits of people because it's about you know it's it's about re- releasing people from this class consciousness. And again, the the point here is the teleologi- the teleological or the natural or like the end of something, right? So like, um, and this comes to us from Aristotle because Aristotle would say like the the reason like the teleology of a pen is to write. Right. So like that's what makes it a pen is the fact that you right. can write with it is because that is its end purpose. And so for a lot of people at the dawn of the 20th century, and here we are at the dawn of the 21st century. So this is important for us to keep in mind at the dawn of the 20th century it was like, we are witnessing the end of history, right? There will be no more. There is no more journey. There is no more discovery. There is no more anything because we have clearly known everything there is to know, especially since we have physics and we have economics and we have all these things. Okay, turns out they were wrong. Just like every single human being has always been wrong when they have made that kind of a claim. What Nietzsche talks about, and you can read about this in my piece, Why We Laugh or Why I Laugh, is he kind of talks about how ultimately laughter is the thing that takes down the moralizers of our age. And that's what, and so when you, and so that's why if you find an ideology that's so, that's so scared of laughter, then, or, yeah. um, and why have you, and more importantly, why have you as a person are scared of laughter? And I take, I, I say this as somebody who, you know, my, my personal history that I don't always talk about a lot, but like I was bullied a lot as a kid. I moved around a lot. I've always kind of been an intellectual kind of a, not a weird guy, but just a different person, right? Like 
took me a long time to kind of come into my own in, in, in many respects. But like, you know, so I took myself very seriously. I was bullied. People made fun of me. And so for a long time, it was difficult for me to laugh at myself. And if somebody, and if somebody like made fun of me, I would immediately, even if it was like my brother, I would immediately take it as an insult. Right. And I was a much, I wasn't as kind of a person. I've always been a kind person, but I wasn't as kind as I am now where I can laugh at myself. And, and life is so much more fun when you can laugh at yourself. Mm. My mantra for this year is to lean into the absurdity of the universe and to just, and just to go with whatever flow there is and to like, you know, maintain true to my principles and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. But like is, um, but, but just this idea of anything that doesn't have laughter inside of it is, is a problem. Now there is a problem we could say with too much laughter. We, you know, like it's not, again, I'm about, I'm about calibration and I use this and my, my formulation on truth is very useful to this because I, I like to say I set aside what truth is a long time ago. Instead, I, I endeavor to find out what is. I think what is exists somewhere between expression and understanding. So like th- what is mm-hmm. truth exists somewhere in between those things. And I'm about trying to orient ourselves in a way that actually like that, that actually brings us to that. And so, yeah, I'm making things a little more complicated, but it still has the same effect in practice. Awesome. I want to highlight that my mom is watching. This is great. She just chatted in. Great interview. Thank you. So, <laughs> hi, mom. <laughs> we love you. Also, Jose chatted in earlier. Thank you, Jose. Yeah, that's actually something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, too. Your construct of expression and, did you say understanding. Understanding. Understanding, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just kind of is a blending of the objective and subjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I remember a few years ago, uh, listening to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris kind of debating what is truth? And mm-hmm. Sam Harris had the, you know, scientific truth is what we can see and what we can deduce, I guess. Jordan Peterson was more truth is like an arrow flying straight, like straight and true. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, then that means that sin is simply the arrow not flying true. Yep. It's missing the mark, literally. That's sort of the etymology of the word sin. So, I mean, does one or the other of those seem to fit with you or did you really set aside the word true? Uh, I mean, not that, I mean, it's one of those words that you can kind you kind of use it in common speak as well. Mm-hmm. So I would say certainly the idea of something flying true is a little bit better. It's more the, for me, it's more that truth with a capital T that everybody loves to claim knowledge to. And it kind of came from this thing as I was doing my own little journey and like looking, it's like, oh, well, he says he has truth. She says he has truth. He says, you know, that guy says he has the truth. They, all these people are out here claiming that they have the truth and that they're, you know, that they're, and, and let's just, let's just stick in the Christian realm, shall we? You know, like the Catholics say they have the truth. The Baptists say they have the truth. The evangelic, the, the Seventh-day Adventists say they have the truth. The Gnostics said they had the truth. The Muslims say they have the truth. The Buddhists say they have the truth. Like everybody kind of says they have the truth. And so like the skeptic can't exist without, without this like, uh, without this conflicting of thought, right? Like with, uh, otherwise it's like as a, as a school, right? Cause you could say you're a more open person. You're a little more inquisitive, right? You're going to not necessarily take things for granted as easily as other people, but more importantly, um, but, but like as a school, the idea that this can actually be turned into something that can be taught, it only comes in the presence of, of opposing, uh, of seemingly opposing schools of thought or sc- thoughts or schools of thought that are opposed for various reasons. 
the one I always like to go to because it's the one I learned it, I learned this in the context of is, um, and because it removes some of like the political uh, machinations because people didn't care about politics because the politics was the realm of the king. It wasn't the realm of the people are the Stoics and the Epicureans. And one of them, and you know, here's an interesting thing for your audience if they haven't heard me say this before, but it's like the Stoics were very providential, right? They kind of didn't really believe you had control over anything in life. All you had over was control of your your judgments, not even your actions in most cases. Whereas the Epicureans were all about the pleasure now, right? Because there is no future. There is no, there is no divine providence. There is nothing that is ordering the universe. So we may as well just, you know, maximize our pleasure in the moment. Oh, doesn't that sound like the, basically the, 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 con, the going back and forth of human history in a way? At least it does to me, right? And, we ha- and then in the scientific age, we have the rationalists and the empiricists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess now we have the, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know exactly what it is yet. I think it's, I think it's kind of taking shape. But we've always, if you look at history and you look at ideas as a historical method, which is kind of, or if you look at ideas in a historical sense, you do see these things happening in each age that exists, right? Like even in the Enlightenment, everybody wasn't the pure Enlightenment philosopher. And of course, you know, some people will point to Descartes as like being the guy who got it the most wrong. But what was Descartes trying to do in his meditations? He was trying to prove rationally the existence of God, right? So like he was just as concerned with these ideas of the beyond as people are today. He just had a different method, a different vector at which he tried to approach it. Um, we have a tendency, right? And again, I think this exists at the instinctual level, but we have a tendency to turn things into monoliths, to turn things into binaries, because that makes it very easy to understand. And in fact, for most of, you know, if you think of like a human tribe, it makes a lot more sense, right? That, okay, this is our way. That's their way. Our way is better, right? And so, I don't know. It's, this is, um, this is the, this is the mess we've inherited in some respects, right? And again, I go back to the point of why aren't these conversations happening on you know, major news platforms, right? Be- well, because they're not connected to what is at all, right? They claim mm-hmm. to have the truth, but they don't. And that's one of the reasons why, th- I think that's maybe one of the reasons if we accept an idea of like a human unconsciousness is um, uh, like a mass human unconsciousness, the way Jung would have put it, is like, I-, I think that's why you start to see this, like what podcasting has been able to do. Um, and again, the political realm is, is an, an important part of this, but it's not, it is, uh, and it is, of course, the realm in which things actually have consequence. Because again, we're trying to figure out who owns what. And so where, that's where, again, go, and let's go back to the post-libertarian moment. That's why I said, I said, I've said elsewhere, like if the LPMC didn't exist, all of this new innovative thought really wouldn't be an issue. The problem is part of this innovative thought is basically saying like, is basically saying, yeah, that strategy is not the best. And that's, that's just, I mean, I, you know, people are will, obviously people disagree with me. Plenty of people disagree with me and that's fine. I could, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm also, by the way, I'm happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> that's the thing. Uh, this is, this is what's, I think this is what my skeptical frame allows for me to have as well is like, I like to say the one thing I love being, the one thing that I love more than being wrong is being right. But the one thing I love more than being right is being wrong. Um, and I try to maintain, and, and while it doesn't always come across when you're doing a show or when you're writing something, that is like, that is what I return to, right? It is the case that I have changed, I not necessarily changed my viewpoint of the world, but come to a greater understanding. It's, for me, it's, again, it's evolutionary in a sense. I hate to make this about libertarian infighting. I think it's such a tired and boring topic, but 
you know, I mean, it's a thing. Do you think that the reason that the sort of old guard libertarians, or I don't know, you've kind of coined the term corporate libertarians. Is that sort of the same thing? Uh, there's an old guard and there's corporate. It's okay. they're, they're is, like, is I, that, what about regime libertarians? Are those, uh, I, I would, I would consider regime and corporates more okay. or less synonymous. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, I think re- I just wanted to get the terms kind of, yeah, defined. I would, I would consider a regime is a little more of a pejorative in a sense, whereas I think corporate is a little more analytical. Uh, and it feeds into an idea that I haven't written about yet, but is basically the difference between like from a creative standpoint, like corporate creations are very different than authentic creations. Here's an easy way. Brian Stelter, corporate. Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. authentic. Right? Like we, and you can, and yeah. just through the, I can, we can walk through those ideas more. Um, but like, that's a very easy way, a juxtaposition to understand exactly what I mean in the difference. A corporation is Lil Nas X. A, uh, an authentic creator is Kanye. Like, you know, just somebody who is willing to go wherever. Because like when you're a creative, when you're an artist, um, of course, I have a musical background. So, you know, like that, I think that maybe helps me connect to the ideas a little bit better. But like when you're, when you're an artist, you know, you're not, when you are struck by inspiration, it is not necessarily something you have complete control over, right? It's kind of like riding a wave or riding a horse, Right. It's not that it's this thing that you can kind of control, but it could also go completely out of uh, out of spec. Uh, the little thing that so that piece right there is actually if you if people are watching, you can see it. It looks it's a window with a bunch of pieces of paper glued to it that have a lot of words on it. Those words are um, poetry that I've written over the years, like from when I was a teenager, basically to like my early 20s. Um, and I did that as a, I did that as a, in part for like a conceptual art piece as a credit for a class. But like the, the idea of the conceptual piece is that you're in the backseat of a stranger's mind, which is a metaphor I use a lot in my work. It comes with the idea of expression and understanding. That's actually the name of the piece. But so like what you're actually viewing from there is from the inside out, from the outside in, which is the other side, you're just going to see a boarded up window. But of course, on the inside, you see all of this poetry that's, you know, beautiful or like, or meaningful, or, um, or, or, or what have you. I forget your question. <laughs> well, I asked briefly for the distinction between old guard and ah, corporate yes, and, I was, and, and so like, and so the, so the corporate creator has an audience already there for them, okay. right? And so it's just about what can, I, what can I give to this audience so that they stay tuned in? The authentic creator says, I have something I need to offer the world. How do I attract an audience to me? And so, and that's, and so I think, if you keep playing, if you keep teasing out that distinction, you start to notice like patterns in people's behavior, i.e. in a, you know, maybe a new website that has a hyphen in the middle of it. Um, that, <laughs> that's being done. <laughs> but they're, they're so based. They're I mean, so based. I, aren't, aren't they just the basedest? They're the most based. Um, it's, it's, you know, and yeah, I'm taking, and yeah, I'm taking jabs. One of the reasons why I'm taking jabs, by the way, is because, you know, you, you could say we're always responding to younger versions of ourselves. And it's one, it's one of those, I, I literally remember like, well, if I was good enough, if I was good enough, then, you know, somebody, an, an organization like Reason would have found me or mm-hmm. this was, this was, this is me before I started been awake, by the way. But like when I was like more in college and like thinking about going a more academic route or a writing route and like, I just couldn't afford because of my expenses and my debt, I couldn't afford to do like those internships where you only get paid a thousand dollars a month. Cause you know, my family, like my family can support me in many ways, but like buying an apartment in a new city was not one of them. 
right? So it was, so it was just, I just never did those things. And I kind of was like, well, this writing thing is just never going to work out for me. And that's okay. And then now here I am like, you know, I'm growing. My, my, my reach is growing. But, the, but to the point is, I was waiting for a gatekeeper to take notice and then realized you don't need a gatekeeper anymore, right? And that is, um, that, that's a form of chaos, right? And that's one of the reasons why I think these major institutions, going back to like a CNN, why they have to turn on the social control mechanisms that much more. Because at this point, they're only trying to maintain an audience. They're not trying to grow one. So there's a couple of things that I, there's two pins that I've kind of pinned up from what we've just kind of been discussing. The first thing, so do you think that Nietzsche concept of laughter that you were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. do you think that that's why the sort of corporate libertarians slash old guard are so threatened by Dave Smith? Yeah, I mean, clearly. Because Dave Smith is, and and I think, um, and I think Malice talks about this well too, is also Dave Smith didn't go through the proper means. Right. He didn't do what you were supposed to do, which is when you're in college, which is go to college for one. Right. So, like, how can you possibly claim to have any kind of intelligence if you don't go to college? This is the cathedral speaking. Like, and so, and so, like, he didn't go to college. He didn't get the internship at Cato or at um, the Manhattan Institute or something like that. He didn't get the internship. He didn't go on to get work on his master's degree. He doesn't spend his time doing in-depth empirical studies that prove your, that prove the point you're trying to look for. Um, he didn't do all of these things. And so now he's got a decent, he's got a decent following. And so what do people do? Well, they try to minimize him. Right. And, and I, and I, and like Dave isn't, Dave is awesome. I like Dave. I think we would be friends if we met. But like, you know, Dave also knows his Dave also knows his limits too. So he doesn't pretend to be the empirical expert on a in a field, right? If if he said if somebody was really wanting to get into IP, he would say go talk to Stefan Kinsella. Stefan Kinsella is the academic is the academic source on this, right? If you wanted to get into high-level Austrian theory, don't go to me. You go to the Mises Institute. You talk to somebody like Thomas DiLorenzo or you talk to somebody like Jeff Deist or, or you know, or somebody at that institution who can provide a more higher level um, analysis. I think people, I, I think um, there's a brashness to Dave Smith, right? Which kind of just, which comes from his upbringing. And by the way, also comes from this like anti-cathedral uh, intellectualism as well, right? It's, it's, this, it's this understanding that Civil, like it's not even civility per se, but collegiality, we might say. It's like, it's just this whole thing. Like, you know, I'm not going to go out, like we're, like you said, it kind of towards the beginning, like we're, we're friends now. Like, you know, we talk outside of podcasting and, you know, we, we're, we're supportive of each other's work and yada, yada, yada. Like if you put something out there that was like really, that I really disagreed with, my first thought isn't going to be to publish a hit piece on you. Yeah. Right. Or like right? call me out on Twitter. So we have right. So we have a collegiality in that respect, um, and but where that does, but that doesn't exist between somebody like Dave Smith and um, that guy Alex from the Cato Institute. Yeah, right. Or or even Which, uh, the, the proper pronunciation of his last name is Norasta. 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 Okay, yeah. thank you. Because I will. I will use it. that. <laughs> Well, it's like, isn't it interesting how these, like, and frankly, you know, like <laughs> with Muniz, I know that like, it's everyone, everyone always says it different, but it's like, it's okay. It's, you know, it's like, it, yeah. like Munoz, Munoz, Muniz, Munato, carajo. Um, that's not, that's just a curse word. Um, but like, I, I don't know why people are scared of Dave Smith. I think except for that's where 
except to say that's where the corporate or the regime analysis actually is very useful and distinguishing yeah. between those two things. And, and, the, and I think the concept of respectability as well, which again, if we're talking about a class analysis, comes to us from the cathedral, not from Marx. Imagine if Malice were interested in politics in the least. I mean, he did go to a good university and get that Cato internship and all that stuff. I mean, he's properly pedigreed. Plus, he's got the, uh, you know, I was born in the USSR Mm -hmm. cachet that so many libertarians wish they had. I mean, you know, I mean, libertarians are just as, look how victimized I am as, you know, the woke. Yeah. Well, or or they can be. Well, that's right. But, but, But to the point, look at how somebody like Malice has been able to increase his profile across multiple disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in part, this is, you know, like you you were very kind in talking about how I'm educated and I don't have a piece of paper to prove that. But I've read a lot of stuff and I did spend some time like, you know, learning how to do it. But some of it is like having a way, like understanding the way in which people communicate in that respect. If we jump a little bit to like the critical theorists, we see this very well going back to how like, the demystification, which I think is something that a philosopher does, is is like the demystification of the language, right? So if we say we're interested in pedagogies of of oppression and da da da, it's like, yeah, you just want to talk about how like you you just want to you just want to basically impress this racial narrative on us that that is to say that white people are the great evil and therefore anything that isn't necessarily white is is therefore better. But like you forget about the fact that there are white Hispanics, but you really don't because you can still provide an analysis inside of that. And you call everybody Latinx, even though really the only people who use that word are like our are, are, are uberly educated urban elites, right? Like it, nobody uses yeah. that in, in, common, in common language. This is the fashion element of things. And I'd encourage people, if you're interested to go re- read my piece, um, Androgyny versus Evolution, for, for a little bit more of an insight to what I mean when I talk about like the fashionable elements to ideas. So another pin that I thought of while you were talking earlier, we've got right now, we're kind of breaking up into two different things. And we're kind of, I firmly believe this, transitioning or have transitioned from a materialist age to a more mystical age, right? Sure. Where things break down a little bit for me, and I think you probably have some good insight on it, is that it feels like what we call the left, the progressives, are in this organized religion. They've got the creed, they've got the code, they've got the cult, they've got the community, the four C's that make a religion. Mm -hmm. The right, their mysticism is coming from chaos. They're coming from memes and Donald Trump and Mm -hmm. the authentic as opposed to the corporate. So the kind of common definition of left and right that you hear is that the right prefers order and the left prefers chaos. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be playing out in reality. Am I missing something or is that definition of left and right flawed? I think it is incomplete. It is a very, for political analysis, it's very useful to treat the left as chaotic and the right as orderly. You can construct a lot of good political arguments around that. I don't think, but, but we have to, but, but, if, but, but I am not, here, here's what I'd say, I'm not interested in, in, in a set of ideas that doesn't distinguish between somebody like Brian Stelter and, you know, maybe a family member who watches Brian Stelter on Sunday because, he, because they think that this is the news. Like that, those two people are not the same. This is True. where the elite, this is where an elitist understanding, we might say, comes into play, which is to, and, and um, 
and where I would say Nietzsche's idea of the herd comes uh, is 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 very powerful, or just an anti egal or my formulation, r- ridding ourselves of the egalitarian delusion. So it's very easy to look at, and like I'm I'm I fall victim to this too. But it's like um, it's very it's very easy to look at like the crazy TikToks you see and just be like, oh, every single person who is a progressive is going to is just this crazy and they've lost it. And by the way, a lot of them have. But there's there is a clear delineation between the people who are position who are in positions of authority and the people who follow people in positions of authority. And in fact, if we had different people in positions of authority, their behavior would change. How do I know this? Because I have witnessed firsthand how much people's behavior has changed over the last two years. Just that that people have completely changed the way they view the world, the people that they talk to, the things that they say. It's just, it's, it, I think, I think everybody, I would like to think everybody has an example of this, but maybe just because I, I didn't grow up in a single place, I'm always on the move. I, I you know, I, I travel a lot. I don't really, I didn't have that like small town upbringing um, that some people have, or like I never lived in a place for more than a few years, uh, even, even in the same town, like we, we, we would change houses. So like, I think we've witnessed, I have witnessed the degree to which, again, that's why I started writing again and why the power, why I've, why I have such respect for the power that even in the small way of the people who are kind enough to like read my work and, and listen to me and listen to my podcast is, is this thing of like people's behavior will change if they have, if they have better information, maybe not exactly as, as much as you want, right? You're not going to take somebody who is super high in openness and super low in conscientiousness and turn them into somebody who is super high in conscientiousness and super low in openness. That's not the way biology works. Right. right. And so, and, and this is, so I think a secondary or ancillary understanding of left and right is this behavioral aspect of it based on the work of somebody like Jordan Peterson, but like, but based on these different metrics of like openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, and so on. I also don't think there has ever been really an American right. There has never been a truly reactionary right in America. We are witnessing it for the first time. And so you'll notice in my writing, some of my more recent writing, where I'm trying to identify these groups um, and trying to and trying to talk about it. Because certainly a year ago, I was not comfortable with calling myself "quote unquote" right wing. Today, I really I, today I, I understand it a little bit more, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? That does actually describe me, and it kind of does make sense why when I interface with people, where it can get awkward because I don't have the natural go with the flow, go with what power says uh, that exists in the common understanding of somebody who is generally left. Going back to recalibration, it's not about liberal and conservative anymore, Mm -hmm. right? It was never about liberal and conservative anymore because the progressives were in charge, right? And we can, I would argue that that neocons are just right-wing progressives of a sense, yeah. So this is again where the so the pantheonic approach that I'm developing also incorporates this as well. Where like in any school of thought you can identify a left and a right wing. Something that I know your audience would be uh, understanding of this is the way in which Thad Russell, whom I have a lot of respect for, uh, talks about like postmodernism as a form of skepticism. And so the the question has been levied at me about like you know well what's different about that? I think mine is a little more concerned with, I guess order, I suppose. But like it's it's not a left wing. By, by fluke or by fault, it's not, I don't have like that left-wing interpretation um, that I think has exist that I think exists in some other forms of uh, like, in, like in a postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it, 
really is just the fact that, like you said, we, we've never had a real reactionary right in America. I mean, we're, we're too young a country to have... And have had, we ever had to? And, because it's been pretty good for Americans yeah. living high on the hog, you know, thanks to, you know, thanks to being the, the world reserve currency and easy money and like everybody having less than us. And so we can just buy their goods and, you know, all these other things. Yeah. The United States was a construct of the Enlightenment. We didn't have pre-Enlightenment society. So like there was never anything to react against. I mean, even if some people are more conservative and some people are more liberal, that is the milieu in which that order chaos definition was constructed. So maybe it really is just innocently incorrect. Tell me, so what is the pantheonic approach if you can define it? Like, why are you calling it that? And what does it look like? Yeah, I'm calling it that because it because it's um, because I'm obviously hearkening to like the Greek pantheons, the idea right. of all these different gods, and what the like the ancient conception of what God was was in multiple parts, and it was all these it was kind of all these different elements of our personality in a certain respect, right? So the ancients didn't believe that the ancients in sometimes would believe that like if you were overcome with emotion that that was a god, like if you were angry that was Aries you know, coming and coming and like inhabiting you or like, or giving you his energy in a sense. So the reason for it is, I I thought it sounded nice, but, but the purpose of the method is, like I said, it's a means by which we can try to, we can try to separate out ideas, not in an absolute sense, because we can't do it in an absolute sense, because ideas are not like rocks and plants. They are not so easily separatable. uh, They're not so easily separable from each other, but it's, it's so basically it's like, okay, so let's, what is progressivism? Right? How can we? What are all the constructs of progressivism? What are all the constructs of feminism? What are all the constructs of libertarianism? And you know, and again, I'm using a circle to represent these things because for mm. reasons that we can get into. But it's so it's like so the pantheonic approach is if how is also a means by which we can start the attempt at understanding what's at the center of a set of ideas. Because and that's by the way, why what is coming for a circle? That's a radius. You kind of need a radius in order to calculate what a circle's circumference is or vice, or you need to know the circumference in order to calculate the radius. So if we can understand the limits of thought and every thought is required, it's required to have limits. And if you want to be a sophisticated, if you want to be a sophisticated person who understands how thinking works, you have to accept that, right? Which, and so like the, the pretense that this is, this is where like the queer theorists are completely wrong because they were they want to remove all of these limits to things and think that that's going to lead us to a greater understanding and it's not because our understanding is limited because we are limited creatures and there has to be a limit to every uh, every form of thought so so the pantheonic approach is this means by which and i've uh, this there ha- this has been written about so you can go and look for that on my substack as well but it's this thing of where we can try to understand a set of ideas one of those things that i think that comes out is like oh we can actually see a left and a right inside of all these ideas because we can split that circle in half so we can understand that people's temperament it can that multiple temperaments can exist within the same school of thought the second aspect of is this idea of identity that i'm very concerned with and the fact that when I ask people, what is your school of thought? What ideas influence you? A lot of people will like to say, well, I don't like labels. Or they like to say like, well, I'm just kind of, I just kind of borrow from here and borrow from there. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I'm just here to say, okay, we want to be a little more sophisticated in our understanding. And if we build a sophisticated, if we build something sophisticated, we can then make it simpler. So we could say something like Marxism bad. 
<laughs> like I can walk you through why, you know, like we, we've walked through like the different means by which I think Marxism doesn't work or, or mm-hmm. at least why it shouldn't be taught to young people based off like communism and the millions of people killed as a result of it. But like, I could also just say Marxism bad, don't study, you know, and like, and, and, and it actually, it works. Like I can, it, the difference is that I can defend the idea more than I think somebody who's just learning about these things can. All right. Let's, uh, for the last few minutes, switch gears. I want to talk to you about your Fauci versus Rand Paul and mm. why Fauci is not doomed. Yeah, it's, well, so, I mean, you brought up a good point before we started recording that it could be that somebody like Fauci is, could get fired, right? That's possible. Yeah. Keep in mind, the guy's already part of the 1%. He's already a millionaire. So like, even if he gets fired, chances are he's going to be fine. But so, you know, we've seen these, interactions between Rand Paul and Dr. and Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci. I shouldn't say Dr. Fauci. That's how, that's how trained the narrative is even, right? Because like, I mean, because Rand Paul is a doctor and I kind of, I tried to include that in the piece that I wrote to, to, to draw the, um, to draw the correlation. So a lot of people watched the most recent one and the most recent exchange between the two of them were like, can you believe it? Like Rand Paul is coming at him with all these facts and logic and Fauci is here telling him that he, that he's being the threat of attacks and the threat of, uh, the, the threat of like violence against him. And don't they know that Rand Paul, right? So like, and don't they know that Rand Paul mm-hmm. was actually attacked? And of course, that's all useful information. It, it obviously serves the, it obviously serves to bolster Rand Paul's position. It shows Fauci to be a hypocrite, but it only shows Fauci to be a hypocrite if you already agreed with Rand Paul. And um, I think what I had a really good line in here, sir, controlled, normally caught in the blood sport of political theater, emotional condemnations of Fauci missed a very important element of the story. To understand this deeper layer, you must understand three things. There's the symbolic elements of all political rhetoric. Dr. Fauci's response was prepared in advance and Dr. Fauci's response had the intended, had the intended effect. There is, uh, we have in our country simultaneously operating at least, you know, you could, or, or in the world at large, like three different moral systems, right? And this is, this is borrowed from psychology. And so it's a psychological understanding of morality, not necessarily like a theological one. But what the victim morality is, is an inversion of honor morality. And so whereby you signal your honor by showing how much of a victim you are. Mm-hmm. So Fauci knew Rand Paul was going to come after him in this exchange knew he was going to attack him for all the things that are coming out about how the U.S. funded this gain-of-function research across the world, that in fact, it very well, the Chinese might have actually been right when they said that the U.S. were the ones who created this, who, who created the virus to begin with. Of course, not to say that the Chinese are exactly right, because of course, the Chinese had a hand in it too, right? This is, again, they, these things are complicated. But, but I, what I thought was important to understand was that this was a win for Fauci because he signaled his um, he signaled his victim status, which worked well to which worked well for like an MSNBC to write to write the story. So the the simple formula, and we all we we use this at different points in time, and it's it's worth before we get too before I get too far into it, I should say that like this comes from a good place, right? Instinctually, we we want to protect victims, right? Because victims are somebody who have been wronged and, you know, good people want to right wrongs in all, in all cases. So, this, so what this is, is an idea pathogen, the way Gad Sad talks about it. 
And so this is an idea path. So like the victim morality is an idea pathogen. So it's it's hijacking an existing system to create an intended social to an, an intended effect of social control. So it the the formula is basically you appeal to an authority figure for intervention. That authority figure in this case was the chair of the Senate. It could also just be you know a group a group of people on Twitter. Right. So if you appeal, like appealing to the crowd is its own form of authority in a sense in this regard. You conflate a rhetorical opponent, in this case, Fauci conflating Rand Paul with a real danger, quote unquote, that could cause you or someone close to you harm. You then share an anecdote, which helps personalize the narrative, which helps give people something to latch onto. And then you condemn the opponent for benefiting, for benefiting from something that could cause you physical harm. And of course, in the story, Fauci was talking about some guy that was driving across the country, which, by the way, if you actually look into the story, he said he wanted to kill Biden. Fauci was like number four on the list. But that doesn't matter. <laughs> nobody's actually re- nobody's reporting that in major press outlets. I think and maybe NBC did because I did a little bit of looking to, to, to get to the bottom of the story. But like this was the case of a crazy guy who is driving across the country, which happens all the time because people go crazy. Right. Like, cause some people had, and he got like fired. Oh, and he got fired from his job. And oh, isn't it interesting how in behavioral science, we understand that people have stressors and that stressors can kind of cause people to go psychotic or violence or things like that. Um, and so I say they're very, they're variations, but like basically, this is like, you'll notice this deployed in all kinds of media spats and social interactions. Growing up, my parents called this tattling, but today it represents a legitimate means of discrediting your opponent to millions. And and what and it's important to understand that in politics, your the moral edge goes to the person you already agree with. This is the this is the this is the this is the fatal flaw in conservatism, because because conservatism is what, what was the headstone I heard recently? It's like imagine if if imagine if things were the other way. Yeah, like I I find somebody like what like some of the work that Andy No has done has been heroic. Obviously, like. Exposing Antifa has created a lot of uh, a lot of problems for him, right? To where he has to fear for his life. Same thing with somebody like um, uh, James O'Keefe with Project Veritas, with mm-hmm. with Tim Pool. They were all just recently on Tim Pool's show, and as I watched it, I was kind of reflecting upon the fact that a lot of the and this isn't meant to be insulting. This is just an observation, but like a lot of it was basically like, could you imagine if things were the other way, what they would do? And that's been like, that's been this talking point in conservatism for my whole life. And I think yeah, we'll forever. always, and I think kind of given going back to that behavioral, that temperamental component of things, I think some of that is, is inevitable, right? Like somebody who's not as, so it's, it's, if you're not as open or creative a person, it's, it's a lot easier for you to say, well, imagine if this was turned the other way than it is to, than it is to try and envision a system in which that doesn't happen to begin with. Again, all those people have done good work exposing the like the dangers of left progressivism and like the dangers of the regime and like all the problems with the current crop of elites. It's but I'm just pointing out that even they can kind of fall to use the word victim to this mentality of like, well, if only it was an even playing field. Well, guess what, people? We need to rel- we need to rid ourselves of the egalitarian delusion. There is no even playing field. Politics is about power. So either either you either you own up to that and you actually operate as if that is true going back to the idea of the, in the Jordan Peterson sense of like shooting an arrow straight mm-hmm. or you should get out of the political game because if you're in the political game and you're not under and you don't operate under the assumption that it's about power and about acquiring power you are going to lead people off of a cliff 
that's that's the part that's the part that frustrates me a little bit um with with the way that like you know people want to poke hole like attempt to poke holes in this post libertarian business without ever talking to any of the people involved or like trying to say like I happen to notice that some people were taking shots at my essay somewhere and like people were pointing out my capitalization. It's like, yeah, I yeah. kind of do that on purpose. Actually, go listen to my interview with Pete Canona as I talk exactly about how I lay traps in my writing to purposefully uh, get rid of people like that or, or, or to basically give somebody an easy trap that they can fall into to where they never... It's the same thing in my exchange with the agorists recently, um, like with the agorist nexus and all the thousands of words they mm. wrote against my 500. Um, it, it was the same kind of thing of like, I can lay traps in my writing such that somebody who's coming in looking to disagree with me is going to find the thing that they disagree with and they are going to run away happy. But people who are looking for better sense making will find it in the things that I put out. So the point here is that the point here is to say just because Rand Paul is doing well against Fauci and just because Rand Paul has facts on his side doesn't mean in the power analysis that Fauci actually loses power. Right. And, and to the point is, oh, so they're, 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 oh, have they been choking us for the last year and they've let up slightly and so now we have marginally more oxygen and this is something that should be cheered. No. Like this is, this is, yes, there are, you take the victories where you can go, but the battle is not the war. Winning an, you know, the OSHA mandate being struck down in 50% does not mean the war has been won. Yeah. And in fact, didn't we just see this past weekend? Like they're still going through with this stuff. The, the, the passports still exist. Oh, you mean they got the behavioral thing in place? And so they, they let up on the rhetorical narrative around it. This is, this is how these people operate. And what's frustrating is how, you know, bringing it to the libertarian space, because that is where we are, um, maybe moving beyond it, but that is where we are and like the large portion of both of our audience. It's like, what frustrates me is the inability for people to do these, these forms of analysis. And, and, it's why, and it's why I'm here talking about it. Because, you know, because I don't see people talking about things like this. And even, even if Fauci does get fired, you know, asked to resign or whatever it is, I mean, we have entered... Fauciism, like yes, the next yeah. big catastrophe, which is going to be climate change. I think we all know that. There's going to be a government scientist who is the representative of science, and at least for the beginning of it, just like for the beginning of COVID, the majority of people are going to go right along with it, and then they're going to get what they need out of it, and then that like forty percent or whatever that isn't quite as susceptible to the mass formation psychosis. Mm -hmm. Which will probably get me. I thinking. like the term. I like the term moral panic better. Yeah. Um, well, the way that Matthias Desmet, who the guy on Rogan, whose name I can't remember, was actually relying on citing, the way he talks about it is hypnosis. It's just a mass hypnosis. It's not psychosis. Mm -hmm. That's like they're two different things, and there will always be the people who are susceptible to that. They will get scared and they will feel disconnected from reality, and then they'll latch on to the person who is hypnotizing them. And just to bump up that point a little bit, because I think like an American audience, we don't like, we don't like to think of ourselves as losing our agency, right? So right. like the idea of like, yep. oh, I'm, I'm hypnotized. Really? I'm hypnotized. You're not the one. Hip it's a very easy thing to, to, to throw out there. Um, but, but we are all hypnotized and you could argue in many different ways. Again, going by, this is where I think the, the study of like the philosophy of fashion, uh, which again, I covered in my episode 69, um, I talked about this, but okay. like, like, the, or, or touched upon it briefly. But understanding like how fashion works, right? Like skinny jeans were big, 
now Pete, now it's straight legs and it's going to be skinny. And I even, I even said this when I was working in retails, like in seven years, it's going to be big. It's going to be straight legs or back in fashion. And they are back in fashion, mm-hmm. right? But some people, but some people will wear skinny jeans for the rest of their life um, or, you know, or something with more of a taper to it. So like when you understand and the thing, what fashion teaches you is that these things aren't eternal, including ideas, right? And so what you can learn then is what you look for is, like I said, those patterns, right? Those patterns between free will and determinism, those patterns between maximizing our pleasure for now or preparing for tomorrow because we don't know what is promised. These, these things are more perennial. These are the conversations that humans have been trying to work out through all of human history and that we've recorded it, right? These are the questions that even inside of, even inside a specific denomination, people are attempting to answer in a religious way or in a philosophical way. Um, I, I look at, I look at things more in terms of the journey than the end. Because the end is going to be ri- the end is going to happen for me at one point in time, hopefully you know thirty, forty, fifty years from now. But like, wow, thirty years? Do I really think I'm going to die at fifty? I don't think so. <laughs> As you can see, I'm not a mathematician, but you know, but like, you're, but you're a budding geometer, so just yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I didn't do well in that either. Um, but to the point is, uh, like, this is where it's like, okay, so what can we do? There is the question of how we got here and there is the question of how we, what we do now, right? And so let's, let me point to something our friend Matt Erickson said, which, which again traces to this post-libertarian moment business, which is the libertarian argues about how other people should define what property is for society. But the post-libertarian is about becoming one of the actual people who get to define what property is mm-hmm. for society. You and I, in our first interaction, consternated about this, about how scary it was to take power unto ourselves, if you recall. Yeah. And we kind of said like, oh, this is, this is a problem. Or not even that this is a problem, but that this is, a, this, is, this, is something to, this is something to be worried about because we can see how people will use power for the wrong ends. I think what we're, the thing that I have come to since we've had that conversation with all the people that I've talked to, the ideas that I've taken in, in that I've tried to synthesize them in like popular writing and, and a good podcast is, you know, you have, to, you have to accept that. You have to accept that authority or someone else is going to go and create something called base dash politics. And, <laughs> you know, and it's just, and it's just cringe. It's just the same kind of, there's, have you noticed this is something I've noticed recently, how everybody's rhetoric is kind of returning to what it was in 2019. Like, I, I can yeah. remember on Kennedy, again, you know, we, I, I, you know I, I, shouldn't just, I shouldn't just call it, I shouldn't just call them out like sideways. Like somebody like a Brad Palumbo goes on Kennedy and is talking about how Joe Biden just, ne- just needs to let the free market handle testing. Yeah. Right, right. Like, oh, well, if I could have just gotten tested, if Joe Biden would just get out of the way, the free market could handle this. No. We shouldn't be doing this to begin with. Look at what we, look at how we have created this society around us such that, again, when you are getting together with the people closest to you in the life, everybody has to get tested beforehand because, oh my God, what if somebody's, but because what if somebody misses work on Monday? Excuse me? Are, are, is your family worth so little to you? And I know it's not. And this is why I'm trying to, this is, this is why I'm trying, I know people, I know people care about their families. That's not the point. But is your family worth so little to you that you're not willing to risk getting sick? Isn't that what a parent is supposed to do for their child? What a spouse is supposed to do for their spouse? What a son should do for his father and mother? Isn't that the natural, isn't this the natural inclination of how a family unit operates? It has been for me. 
I'll do anything for my family, you know? But like, I'll do a lot for my family. But this pretense that we all have to make sure we're safe before we get together is, this is tyranny, right? And so people, and that's again, where if you're just stuck in between the authoritarian and the libertarian cal- uh, calibration, you don't see this because it's just like, well, Biden is being authoritarian. And so if we just did things more libertarian where the free market handled it, then everybody could get a million tests a day. We don't want people to get tests to begin with. I don't want to live in that kind of a society. I don't want to live in the society where I don't see people's faces walking down the street. This is, this is you know, honestly, sorry, i sorry, but like this is, this is a little bit out there, but everybody's been talking about the boxcar and nobody's been talking about Hotel Rwanda. No, nobody's been talking about Hotel Rwanda and the idea that like the French colonizers created this, this arbitrary distinction amongst the population mm-hmm. and that, you know, and then that led to genocide. Like, you know, again, I'm not, I'm, I try to stay away from these grand pronouncements because again, I think, I think the end is going to happen. It's more about where you, it's more about how you find your way there. But, but like really people, are we just going to return to business as normal? I, and for a lot, and what we found, especially in the libertarian world, is that's the case. People are more interested in having a conversation about how free markets could inv- could could um could distribute shots across the population more efficiently than they are questioning why is it with therapeutics available that we need to take we need to take this kind of uh, this kind of a this kind of a medicine, right? And so, and this is this is this is why this is why I'm not stopping. <laughs> <laughs> and why I'm not going to go anywhere until somebody, you know, maybe doxes me. But even then. All right. Well, I want to ask you one last thing about hobby podcasting because you brought it up before we started mm-hmm. recording and it's been sitting on my my little haphazard bullet list of questions to ask you. And I didn't know what you meant by hobby podcasting, but mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit along the line of, you know, create your own freedom path, which which is something that you and Matt and I talked about in something that I've been really taking to heart lately. So yeah. anyway, so you're helping a buddy create a podcast. Yeah. Go from there. So I'm helping. So yeah, if people are interested, you can go to theolioarchive.com. You can check out their Patreon. Um, it's a good friend of mine for years and years and years. He's kind of, uh, he does like 3D, he does like 3D design, like 3D printing, kind of in the automotive world. And it, so he's just, he's like a designer. He's just, you know, he's a good friend of mine. We've, we've known each other for a long time. He's an engineer. And what I'm, we're trying to help build up his brand a little bit so he can increase his freelance work and, you know, and other things. And also he's made a lot of cool things, like actually very cool. He just put on his Instagram today, which is also at the Olio archive. He made a little screwdriver for his son. Who's, um, who's like, who just hit two years old and it's, you know, and like, so he'll be doing something and his son will want to like play with the tools. And so here now he has this like really, you know, it's like an oversized screwdriver, but it's for his son to kind of play play engineer with, right? Which I think is just the cutest thing in the world. So, but we're kind of doing this and invariably, and these aren't like, the, these aren't the normal, this isn't the normal podcaster archetype, right? And in fact, these are people, and what, what has come up a few different times is like, is this, is this good? Because I feel like I'm just saying a lot of stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 that's what podcasting is. Like podcasting is you just dumping out these ideas into the world for people who want to listen. And so I had this like, I had this little thing that I wrote down when him and I were talking recently. Podcasting is the medium that lets you have the conversation you wish you could have with the person you want to have it with. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, you or I are maybe trying to do this as like, not maybe not our main source of income, but as, as a sizable source of income. 
certainly for me, that's the case. Like I would, if, if everybody went to binawake.com slash donate and like made it and like equaled my current salary, like would I probably start doing this full time? Probably. Um, but like to the point is for a lot of people, that's not really what, that's not really what I think podcasting can do. And moreover, I think the technology is so easy to use that anybody can do a show like this. And the hobby, so like the, the idea of hobby podcasting is this isn't going to be my main source of income. This is going to be something I use for like a personal brand or, you know, in the case of you're doing politics to like explore an idea or something like that. But like, this is going to be something I use for my personal brand where all the cool people that I want to talk to, I'm going to talk to them and we are going to have the nerdiest conversation that we could ever have about like sharpening axes or building or like, or, or, um, or how to properly, how to properly hand carve wood handles and think, you know, or how to do appropriate 3d design. And I think, I think it's a medium that more people could use for exactly that kind of thing, because what happens invariably in your natural social interactions is like, okay, I'm really interested in topic A, you're really interested in topic B. So like I talk 50% about the things I want to talk to. You listen respectfully. Maybe you, maybe we bounce ideas around. You talk about the things you want to talk to and I listen respectfully. And like, that's, that's a friendship, right? Like that is, Mm -hmm. that is how these things go. But what is fun, what I love about the podcasting medium is how you can, here's the pretense for us to have a two-hour conversation about the ideas that we've been talking about for the last hour, right? And whether everybody listens to it or whether we listen to it, it kind of is the same at the end of the day. And if you're good, and then if you're good enough, you can, you know, I think rise to the top and actually, you know, you have it be a source of income for you as well. But so like just the, I think I, um, TK Coleman talks about this as well of how like, everybody should start a podcast. And I firmly believe that. And there in, in our little niche, because so much of us have started podcasts, there's the, you can hear the other chorus of people saying, well, I'm not going to start another libertarian podcast. It's like, oh, okay. So wait, so hang on, excuse me. You don't want to learn valuable skills like public speaking, like scheduling, like being respect, like actually learn. Like I've learned how to listen so much better doing these shows than I did before. Cause I'm a talker, obviously, but I've obviously. actually learned how to, yeah, obviously. <laughs> no, but that's why I had you on for my relaunch because I knew that like, I'm going to be here nervous as fuck trying yeah. to do my very first live stream. Who can talk for two hours? Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. But I've learned how to listen to people better, right? I've learned how to better gauge that flow of conversation. I've gotten, you know, like scheduling. If you're, if you're doing an interview show, which is, a, which is like a nice which is a nice way of doing it because you have somebody to bounce ideas off of. Ironically, I get feedback that when I have guests, people want to listen to the solo episodes more. But, you know, I'll just take that compliment, I guess. You know, it's... But like to the point of like, you don't have to think of podcasting as a career for yourself. Don't even think of podcasting as something that everybody has to listen to. That's why we called it... That's part of the reason why we called this project The Archive. This is about putting things down for people to maybe listen to in the future or for you to go back and listen to of like, you know what? What was it that, that, that idea, that, the, the idea the guy was talking about that we can work on? And we're going to build a community around this as well of like, again, because he's kind of plugged into this, uh, like, you know, like axe throwing, axe making, hand forging, knives, like just very, very cool. Some pe- and some people are using it as a relaxation method for themselves. Some people are using it because they want to make these things 100% of the time. The hobby podcaster, I think, is something that should be encouraged in the right frame. So it's encouraged in the frame of this is going to help your personal development for stuff, but this is but but not necessarily that you're going to get ten thousand subscribers, you know. It, like and and it, and so 
ironically, it might be the thing that undoes podcasting to a certain extent, but I think it's, uh, but again, I just, I just look at, I look at this little space, this little niche space of like liberty, libertarian, like broadly libertarian people who just all want to talk about ideas. And I see, I see an opportunity for more people to be able to enjoy again, just like all the things that I'm really passionate about having an avenue which, with, with which I can put that out there. And then the person that doesn't want to sit and listen to me talk about it for an hour, well, hire. If you want, listen to the half hour episode or listen to this clip. And so you can kind of get a taste for the things that I'm working on. So I think um, the point is, in part is that there are skills even in, even if you're not going to do a solo episode for an hour like I do, or you're not going to do like a longer interview show like you do, even if you just keep it to 30 minutes or to an hour, where you're just talking, where you're kind of just doing that mind dump aspect, I think is something that um, is beneficial. It can help you improve important life skills. Like I said, of like being time, like being timely. I'm not a timely person by nature. I tend to run five to 10 minutes late. It's like podcasting helps me fix that because if I say, because I feel a duty to my guest when I'm trying, you know, when I, when I say we're going to start at six o'clock or something like that, or again, the listening skill, or more importantly for a lot of people, the the public speaking aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I act? Because you'll notice, you, you can notice this if you pay close attention like I do, of just how a lot of times people will just stop their thoughts halfway through. And usually that's because somebody, and a lot of times that's probably because somebody in their past has been like, yeah, 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 shut up. I don't want to listen to this anymore. Right? Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Your thing, your thing that you always talk about. I understand, I understand. And we all do this in our personal relationships. But like, so the point of like being able to have, I don't know, I, I think... Um, it's brought me so much uh, stability and like presence of mind and things like that. I think it's something that more people could uh, benefit from. So if you want to check out my buddy, you can go to the audioarchive.com. You'll hear me on some of the episodes. Um, and then of course we were, we're building a little Patreon with a discord server, <clears throat> especially by the way, if you're into like, if you're into axes, you know, like either making axes or throwing axes or just making things in general with like wood or with metal, uh, lots of cool stuff. In fact, one of the things, this is this is like the first prototype, but like I actually use this is like a beard oh, yeah, comb he you've developed. Shown me that before. Yeah. He like so this is a beard comb. This is like the first generation. I actually use the most recent one hundred percent of the time on the road now. Um, but so like this is 3D printed, right? So like I I don't know. I like supporting people that are creative and I think there's um one thing about embracing maybe my political side has shown me that is has reminded me in fact that there are more things than politics as well. Uh, and so like, yeah, so hobby podcasting, I think can work for that too. So. All right, great. Oh, can you spell the Alio archive for, uh, those who don't read the show notes for some reason? Yeah. Yeah. So the T H E O L I O R O L I O A R C H I V E.com. Alio. So Alio is, uh, Alio is like this. It's, it's, that's the name of his company. Um, but so it's, but yeah, so it's like this, like soup, like according to him, it's a soup that translate that like traces its way to Spain, which is kind of like just a hodgepodge. It's kind of like this soup that has a lot of different things in it. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, that describes my friend well. Um, but yeah, so Alio archive, O-L-I-O-A-R-C-H-I-V-E.com, or you can find him on Instagram as well for that. Okay, perfect. Well, go ahead and plug your links one more time and we'll get out of here. Yeah, so if you were interested in the things that I said, which of course you should be, uh, you should go to binawake.com. Subscribe with your email address. And of course, you can find me on all social media at the LB Moniz. Awesome. LB, thank you so much for helping me out with my relaunch. And uh, thank you so much for just 
being a good friend. I will see you in April at the undisclosed event that we're both going to and hopefully talk to you before then. Heck yeah. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. 